Genesis 6, it's pages 4 and 5 in the church Bibles. We're having the privilege here at Calvary Church this year of being able to go through the book of Genesis. And one of the great things about going through the book of Genesis, this is the first book in the Bible and it kind of sets the course for all things. And we have the opportunity as we go through Genesis to go all the way back to the beginning and see what God has to say about various subjects. This morning is no exception. We're thinking about the idea of work. And if you can, you could tell from my prayer and from our testimonies, when I say work, I mean the studies that we're doing in school. I mean the volunteering opportunities that we're engaged with. I mean the paid employment that we do that we get to go back and see and understand work and God's plan for our work. Work was created by God in Genesis before the fall. God gave to Adam and Eve meaningful tasks and work to do so that they could take care of the earth he created. Work has gotten a lot harder (laughs) since the fall. But work is a blessing from God and an opportunity to participate in what God wants us to do. And this morning we're going to look at a story in Genesis that helps us think through what it means to work in school, at our companies, in our neighborhoods, in our nonprofits, or wherever we may be, to work for the glory of God. Now, before we get into the very positive example about work we have in Genesis 6, we also have to acknowledge that sometimes work doesn't go well. The first half of Genesis 6 is one of the strangest stories in the entire Bible. Most people agree that Genesis 6, 1 to 8, is the hardest passage to interpret in all of Genesis. So naturally, we'll skip it this morning. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I actually think it fits into the topic of what we're talking about, and it shows how work can go wrong and be done badly. Let me give you the interpretation of what I think is going on in Genesis 6, 1 through 8. It's the most uh, traditional interpretation of this passage. It's the interpretation that was common at the time of Jesus. Most of the early church fathers hold to this tradition, uh, this interpretation. For myself in my own prayer and study and inquiring of the Lord, uh, I think this interpretation makes the best sense of Genesis 6, 1 to 8, although I can't fully explain what is going on here. But what I understand happening in Genesis 6, 1 to 8 is that fallen angelic beings are committing sexual immorality with human women and giving birth to a race of human giants called the Nephilim who cause all sorts of trouble on the earth. The text doesn't explain how is it possible for fallen angelic beings to cohabitate with human women. But what the text does tell us is that this infuriates God. So angry is God that he takes all of those fallen angelic beings and immediately consigns them to prison in Hades. 
As for the humans who have engaged in this sexual immorality, he decides that he is sick and tired of human disobedience and he limits human existence to something closer to 120 years of life instead of the eight, 900 years that we saw in Genesis chapter five. Well, this gross sexual immorality is emblematic of the stuff that is going on in the world that causes God's heart to be grieved. Now, what does this have to do with work? Angelic beings cohabitating with human women. Well, if you remember the assignment that God gave to all humans in Genesis 1 was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with human beings made in the image of God. This was the main command in Genesis 1. It's not the main command we have today. There are other things God is commanding us to do. But in Genesis 1, the main requirement or the main work for humans to do was to fill the earth with other humans and to take care of the earth and to make the earth inhabitable for the human race. What these angelic beings, these fallen angelic beings, but especially what these human women are doing is instead of participating in the work God asked them to do, they have taken sex outside of what God designed for it to do in marriage and are using it simply to engage in pleasure. That in a failure to do the work they were asked to do, instead of filling the earth with humans made in the image of God, they were filling the earth with beings of an unholy union. This is emblematic of the fact that at this time, humans were abandoning God and what he wanted for them. Look at what it says in verse five of Genesis six. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. Can you imagine how God felt at this moment? Can you imagine what it would be like to look out over your beautiful creation? where everything was good, now filled with nothing but wickedness and evil. Can you hear the grief of God? Can you hear the deep regret? How did it get to this? How did it become this way? I created human beings in my own image. And the whole earth is full of nothing but wickedness. Imagine the disappointment. Can you feel the heartache? As God looks around and sees the entire earth full of disobedience, hatred, violence, sexual immorality, people not doing their work, people not praising God, Every inclination of the human heart, the human heart God fashioned and formed 
was set only on evil. So verse seven. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. At this moment, you may not feel it or realize it, but our existence hangs in the balance. (laughs) At this moment, at the end of verse 7, we should all be wiped out and gone. That if nothing changes in verse 7, there would be no more humans. God simply says, let's reboot the system. Let's just get rid of the whole thing. But then we get one of those contrastive conjunctions, one of those but statements that our salvation always rests on. Like the one in Ephesians where it says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, deserving of wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy. Verse eight, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's almost like God the Father says to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, give me just one reason why I shouldn't wipe everybody out. And one of them says, because of that man right there. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Who is Noah? Well, we know a little bit about Noah. He finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. That reminds us of Abel. And Genesis 3, who offered a sacrifice to God and found favor in God's eyes. Turns out from Hebrews 11 that Noah too, like Abel, is a man of faith. Noah is a man of faith. We also find out in verse 9, he was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So he's full of faith, He walks with God in righteousness. Now, what is this Noah's occupation? Surely he's a prophet or a priest or a religious leader of some kind. No, he's a farmer. He's described as a man of the soil. This is what he does. He farms. We also know one more thing, I think at least, about Noah. And that is he was lonely. Could you imagine what it would be like to be the only human being along with his family, his wife and his children who was trying to seek after the Lord? You have to imagine if there's anybody else on the earth who has any inclination towards righteousness at all, that that person would have been saved as well. The fact that there is not another human being outside of Noah's immediate family who has any concern for God, can you imagine how lonely that must have been? That for most of Noah's adult life, He worked with other farmers who were always trying to cheat the system or cheat one another. 
He lived among people who were violent and wicked. It was like Julia mentioned, the language he probably heard, the sights he probably saw. Justin talked about his uh, construction sites and what goes on there. That's not typical of most construction sites. Imagine Noah and what he's seeing and hearing every day. How would it feel to be the one person trying to do what's right? The one person charging fair prices. The one person trying to pay your employees the right amount. The one person who's trying to live for God. The one person who's probably doing some Sabbath rest and engaging with God. I think Noah was extremely lonely in the midst of what he was doing. But God sees Noah and he gives Noah an assignment. Listen as I read in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And then look at verse 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Question. Why didn't God just strike everybody dead? Except for Noah and his family. That would have been a lot quicker. Why wait for an ark to be built so that you could send rain on the earth to kill everybody that way? Why not just simply say the word? I mean, after all, God created the earth in six days. It wouldn't have been very hard for him to simply speak the word and destroy everybody and everything except for Noah, his wife, and his family. Why doesn't God do this more quickly, especially when you read 1 Peter 3, which says this. God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. God's waiting. If it was me, I'm like, well, let's just say the word. What's he doing? Why wait years and years and years for this to happen? Well, I think 2 Peter 2 helps us understand what's going on. 2 Peter 2, 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, that's Genesis 6, 1 to 8. We talked about that already. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a what? A preacher of righteousness and seven others. Now, wait a second. We just read Genesis 6. Did you hear Noah doing any preaching? Did you hear Noah going around and delivering sermons? No. What's going on? Well, we got to add Hebrews 11 to 2 Peter 2 because Hebrews 11 tells us how Noah was preaching. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah's preaching condemned the world. What was his preaching? He did the work he was assigned to do by being a farmer, a builder, a naval engineer, by doing everything God commanded him to do, his life and his work was a sermon to everybody around. Why does God take so long? He's hoping somebody else will repent. Somebody else will look at Noah and say, but look at that guy. Look at the way he does his work. Look what he's up to. Look at how he trusts God. Noah's work was such that that was his preaching. That people all around him <clears throat> had abandoned the work God had given them to do. So God gave Noah a very specific job. And when Noah did it by faith for years and years, it was a proclamation, a preaching that God exists, that he should be served, and that he's worth believing in. Which is the opportunity for us today to think about the fact that God still does this today. That yes, God could just wave his hand and Jesus could come back and it could all be fixed. But he is waiting patiently for who? You and I to be the Noahs in this culture. And he gives us school and work and volunteer opportunities. And he says, go be Noah. Go do what I have told you to do because when you do it, I will be at work in and through you. Amazing grace. So this morning, let me give us six encouragements in our work that will help us to be like Noah and accomplish what God wants us to accomplish through our school, through our jobs, through our volunteering, through the labor that we engage in. Number one. Your ultimate boss in all work is God. Your ultimate boss in all work 
is God. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 and following says. Slaves, and that's what it meant in the original context, how it applies today, employees, students, volunteers, obey your earthly bosses, teachers, leaders with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. When we go to school, when we go to work, when we show up to volunteer at church or at a nonprofit, this is our opportunity to walk with God. And when you realize that ultimately the algebra homework you're doing You're doing that for the Lord? When you realize that sitting at that desk at Steelcase doing your work, God is sitting there with you? When you realize that when you're at home doing the cooking and the cleaning, perhaps after the kids have gone to bed, that God is standing there with you and the work that you are doing, you are doing with him and for him. When you and I walk with God at school, at home, at work, in extracurricular activities, when we take God with us, then he shines through us. And when we do all our work for him, then others begin to notice something's different. Something's going on here. And so the first encouragement is for you and I to remember our ultimate boss in all work is God. Second encouragement, inquire of the Lord about the purpose of your work. Ask God, why did you put me at this job? Why did you enroll me in this class? Why did you cause me to be part of this organization? Who am I here to be a sermon for? Ask him. This summer, our family listened to a podcast Uh, by a guy named Ben Malcolmson, and he was talking about his book that he wrote called Walk On. It's a really fascinating story. He was a journalist at the University of Southern California, USC, and he was supposed to write an article about what it meant to be a walk-on to the football team. And so he decided if you're going to be a good journalist, you might as well sort of like go through the process uh, to kind of get an insider's view so he could write a good article. Well, he had not played football since middle school, um, but he got signed up. He called the coach, Pete Carroll, at the time and asked if he could uh, do this, and they agreed to it. Well, nobody was more surprised than Ben Malcolmson when he actually made the team. (laughs) He got accepted as a walk-on in USC, and the very first thing he did is he asked the Lord, okay, why did you do this? Why did you put me on this team? This could not have happened by chance. 
At first he thought, well, maybe God wants him to start a Bible study. So he tried to start a Bible study uh, for his teammates. Nobody came. He thought, well, maybe God's got me here to start a prayer meeting. And so he started a prayer meeting and no one attended. He continued to pray, Lord, there's got to be some reason. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was something from Isaiah that caused him to think, you know, your word will not return void. And so he bought everybody on the team anonymously. He was too scared to do it publicly. He put Bibles in all of their lockers. And he had this passage that made him think that God was going to do something with it. And he was thoroughly discouraged when he came in the next day and they were all torn up all over the floor of the locker room. He didn't know what to do about that. Years went by and he ran into one of his old teammates. And they were talking about another person that was a teammate of theirs. And they talked about how they had been Christians at the time but hadn't really sort of talked about it very much. Turns out their other teammate who had just passed away took that Bible and God used that Bible and led that person to faith. And Ben didn't find out about that until later. But the reason he was doing this is because he said, Lord, I can't be here by accident. You're not on whatever athletic team you're on by accident. You're not in the class you're on by accident. You're not at the workplace you're in by accident. God put you there. So the encouragement is just ask him why. Lord, who am I here for? Who am I here to reach? You put me here to be a sermon to somebody. Who is it, Lord, and what do you want me to say? Number three, exemplify God's mercy at work. Why doesn't God just say the word and strike everybody dead at the time of Noah? Because he's merciful. When you go to your job and you exemplify mercy, you show the character of the God you are proclaiming. The workplace is full of people full of contractors who yell at their subcontractors, full of subcontractors who complain about the work of other subcontractors, that might make you feel better about the job you're doing, and it might even help you get your job done on time. But you got to ask the question, how's that going to exemplify a God who is full of mercy? Not firing the person who probably deserves to be fired? That shows God's mercy. Now, I understand. Sometimes God leads us to have to let people go. I completely understand that. But remember, the Lord loves being merciful. And if you look at your job and at school or wherever you have responsibility, if you look for every opportunity to be merciful, you're going to display the mercy of God. Yes, he does ultimately bring a flood and kill the people who don't repent. But think of all the years and years and years he gives them to turn and change their hearts. So any way you can, exemplify God's mercy in your work. Number four, be disciplined in your work and in your Sabbath rest. Do you know that it was not until the 1800s A.D., that any human built a boat this big, again, 
it took until the 1800s for anybody to build a boat this big again. How did Noah do it? Well, I'm sure there were days he did not want to go to work. I'm sure there were days the building project was not going all that well. I'm sure there were days after years and years and years of working at it when he got frustrated. I'm sure there were tons of distractions. But Noah continues to do what God asked him to do until the boat gets built. Listen to me. Please don't think that spiritual warfare only happens when you're doing churchy stuff. If your work is a witness for God, Satan is not going to want you to do your job in a way that's pleasing. If you get done the task God's given you to do, if you thrive at the school that he's put you in, if you work faithfully at home, cooking and cleaning and doing logistics and making arrangements, people are going to experience God through your work. And Satan brings all sorts of distractions to try to keep us from doing that including the distraction of becoming workaholics. And so the encouragement is, be disciplined in your work and in your rest. Number five, talk to people about Jesus. Now I know I just said, Noah didn't go around preaching to people about Jesus. But please, we are in a far better situation than Noah was. His preaching, nobody repented. They were simply all condemned. But that's because in his work, he didn't have the chance when someone asked him a question to be able to tell them about Jesus. We're in a much better situation. That when people begin to see that you are working for the Lord, when classmates are like, why are you doing this? We're headed off to college next year. We don't need to get grades anymore. And you're like, I'm still learning this material for the Lord. When you're at home and people are like, why are, you, why are you doing all this extra stuff to try to get your kids prepared for school and all this stuff? I'm doing it for the Lord. When you're at work and the boss isn't watching and everybody's going home for the day or you're at home and you're like, I don't really have to log in. Nobody's going to know. Your coworkers are going to realize, why are you still working? It's going to give you opportunities to talk to them about Jesus. Some way, somehow, if possible. Just try to bring him into the conversation. The work that you and I do, this paves the way for us to talk to people about Jesus. And so don't miss those opportunities. The Lord puts you where you are. When you do your job with his power, he's going to cause some people to pay attention. And when they ask, just find any way you can to put Jesus into the story. And then number six. Pray for God to establish the work of your hands. Pray about your work. If you do your work well, God's kingdom is advanced. If you do your studies well, God's kingdom is advanced. If you volunteer in the power of the Spirit, God's kingdom is advanced. If you raise children with God's grace, God's kingdom is advanced. So pray for it. Pray that God would help you to do a good job. We're not saying get all A's. We're not saying be the superstar. Just to be faithful. Do a good job. Pray that God would expand the work that you can do. 
Ask the Lord, Lord, if you want, would you put me in harder classes so that I might exercise more faith? Lord, would you give me more people that might, I might be able to work with so that I could influence them for you? Pray and ask God, Lord, is there any more business you want to bring this way? God, I want to use my job. I want to use this stuff for your glory. Please don't think the only thing we pray about is churchy stuff. Your work is your assignment from God. And if you do what God asks you to do, it will make a difference. And so please, see it as spiritual work. And all spiritual work requires prayer. I love thinking about Noah. I love the fact that he's a farmer. He's a salt of the earth guy. He's a blue collar guy. But he's faithful and he's righteous. I love the fact that he must have built that boat well enough that it didn't sink. That he did a good job. We wouldn't be here if he didn't. I love the fact that the first major story of faith in the Bible It's not about a preacher, a pastor, a missionary, a prophet. It's about a farmer, a builder, a naval engineer who did exactly what God told him to do. I love the fact that when God's heart is broken, that the earth is full of violence. He sees one guy who's doing his job. One guy who's being faithful. One guy who's got a family, a wife and kids that he's trying to train in the right way. And this is the salvation of humanity. And that Noah and his boat become one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus and his cross. Let me encourage you, just pick one of those six things and try to do it this week. Think about your school, Think about your job. Think about what you're doing as a homemaker. Think about what you're doing in your retirement. Pick one of those six things and try to work on it this week. And let's see what God will do. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.